Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to start reading in verse 3. I'm going to go down through verse 10. Just for context, in verse 2, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we are grateful that you have revealed yourself to us in your scriptures. Father, we know that your spirit uses your word to change hearts and lives. And we thank you for this recording of your word that we have in front of us I pray, Father, that these, these words, these truths would impact hearts and lives today. Open our hearts. Give us, give us an ability to understand, to hear, and to see. May your spirit do its convicting work, its encouraging work. May your spirit build up the body of Christ this morning through your word. We ask and pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'll start with that same question I asked the children. What kinds of people is God pleased with? In the Beatitudes, last week we did an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, and this is Jesus' introduction to his sermon. Last week we did an overview of the Sermon on the Mount. And in these first few verses, Jesus gives an introduction to his message. And the Beatitudes are, are something of that introduction. The themes that we see in there are going to run throughout the rest of the sermon. But in, in these verses, Jesus describes the kind of people who truly possess the good life. They're the ones that God is pleased with. They're the ones that God favors. And he describes the kinds of people that that is. He describes that group of people, their characteristics. And it's exactly opposite, completely upside down. He, Jesus completely undoes everything that the hearer of that day would have understood for what it meant to be pleased, for, for to be favored by God. They had an understanding of what it meant to have God pleased with them and what that took and the requirements were. And Jesus undoes everything, turns it all upside down. And it is still, even for you and I, some 2,000 years later, it's still contrary to what we would expect in terms of what it means to be accepted by God, to have God's favor upon us. Have you ever found yourself in one of those situations where what took place was the exact opposite of what you were expecting? Where, where as you read and perceived the situation, all of a sudden the, the key was unlocked and you, re that, you didn't see that coming at all. It was completely different than you expected. I had one of those moments for myself last night as I was working on sermon prep. If you're following along with your bulletin and you're taking notes in your bulletin, the, there's no typo in the bulletin. I asked for Matthew 5, 3 through 5 to be written in the bulletin because I only thought we were looking at three verses today. And as I studied and studied and read and tried to make sense, I decided we've got to go all the way through verse 10. And I said, the good people of Shawnee won't mind if it takes me three times as long to finish that many verses. We've got to... So how many of you thought you were coming to a sermon like that today? Completely different than you expected. No. 
Okay, let me see if I can make it a little more applicable to your lives, right? I heard, I heard of a situation that was completely different than, than what I had expected. I uh, had, the, had the opportunity to listen to another ministry, and there was a pastor who uh, had been involved in ministry for many, many years, and he had the opportunity to bring interns into his church like six at a time. They would do this three times a year. They would, go, they would uh, bring in many, many young men and train them for just a very brief time on some of the aspects of their church. So he had the opportunity to sit down with them. He would, he would orchestrate it such as he would search through the applicants. It wasn't just um, if you applied, you didn't get in. There were far more applications than the number that they could expect, than the number that they could accept. And so he had to find a way to kind of weed through and sort through them. So though you may not be able to relate to what would it be like to be a pastoral intern, you've probably found yourself in an interview situation where someone's asking questions of you. you you're, you're wanting to answer the questions well. You're wanting to be chosen. And he would find a way to, to, to talk with four, five, six, seven, eight guys at a time and kind of do a group interview. And he'd watch the dynamics of the group. And as they would interact, he was looking for certain social cues. And there was one question that just was not what I expected. I was told that one of the questions he would ask is he says, okay, everybody in the room gets to ask anybody in the room one question. And he would just go around and listen to questions. Now, if I found myself in that situation, and a particular pastor was a well-known pastor, a writer, a speaker, someone that, that many of these young men would aspire to be like someday. And so you would probably want to impress this man with your question, and you'd be asking him questions about what was the greatest book you ever learned, or how did you decide where to go to school, and all these kinds of things. And he was looking for a very specific kind of question. The guys that asked him questions because they wanted to know things about him, he answered them. The guys that tried to ask smart questions to impress him how smart they were and perhaps he would notice and weed through the applicants that way, he, he answered them, he dealt with it. But within that social dynamic, there was always a few quiet guys, a few that were left out of the conversation. He was looking for guys that would ask them a question. Turn to the quiet one maybe ask about their testimony, maybe ask why they decided to apply for the internship program. He was looking for the kinds of guys who had these others-focused hearts that weren't focused on themselves, but looked for ways to draw others into the crowd. A, a weird thing, and yet when I heard it, it made total sense, exactly opposite of what I would have expected. He wasn't looking for the guys who could impress him. He was looking for the kinds of guys who had a certain characteristic in their heart that, that was probably opposite of what everyone thought he was asking. Now, if you can think of that scenario, if you can take that framework and apply it to the sermon, just the illustration of the upside-down way of thinking, what Jesus is doing here is he's helping people understand that, that the tip, Jesus is, is completely re-explaining the way to be favored by God, the way to be accepted by God. He's breaking down all the typical stereotypes of the day, and, and he's using it as an introduction to his sermon because he's going to keep coming back to some of these themes as we walk through these few chapters over the next weeks. Jesus is, is describing the kind of people who truly live the good life, the kinds of people who are favored by God, and it completely doesn't match the expectations of the day. And many of us will be surprised by what Jesus is expecting and requiring and promising 
to his followers if we truly understand the message. So let's, let's look at these verses as we try to go through them. Before I start going through them verse by verse, there's a few interpretive things that I kind of want to walk through together. Let me give you a few interpretive details, kind of some rules that will help us walk through and understand, clarify a few things that you'll see over and over and over in the passage. In verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. Each verse starts with this blessed, this, this pronouncement of blessing. Most of your Bibles probably say blessed. A few of your Bibles have a few different translations. Perhaps, oh so happy are the man, or happy are those. There's a few other ways to translate the word. The word blessed can mean happy, and in one sense that helps us understand the meaning of the word. And yet, if you simply just stopped with, with uh, happiness the way you and I think of happiness, you wouldn't fully understand what Jesus is trying to explain. He's talking about a true happiness that transcends the subjective way that we feel about happiness. You, you and I, for you and I, happiness is a subjective decision. We, we evaluate our circumstances. We, de- we deem whether or not we feel happy at the moment. Jesus is not saying this from our subjective point of view. He is saying it from his divine pronouncement standpoint. There is a divine blessing, a divine appointment of true happiness. True favor is granted to these groups of people. Over and over and over when you see it, it it's not just that these people are blessed. It's, it's that they are blessed. They, they have been pronounced a divine favor by God and he says that these things are true in their life. Secondly, there's an associated promise for each of them. There's the divine pronouncement of blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. And then with each one of those, on the second half of the verse, there's this, there's this associated promise. There's this complementary, here's why they're blessed, because this is true in their life. So if you look at verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You learn a little bit about what the divine pronouncement means when you look at the associated blessing and when you look at that promise of of why there's favor why why this is truly the good life when you look at the second half of the verse and all of these compliments are associated together there's a a second thing you notice about these compliments these associated blessings if you look at verse 3 blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven look down at verse 10 Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the only time that that second half of the verse, the associated blessing, is repeated. It's repeated exactly. And part of what Jesus is saying is, look, here's the people that truly live the good life. Here's the people that are truly favored by God. They possess the kingdom. They, they possess salvation. These are the people who, who right now are experiencing the benefits of what it means to be a child of God. Now, it's different in tense than every other one of the associated blessings. Notice that what I read for you in 3 and 10 is right now in the present sense. It's reminding us that that yes, as Christians, we are waiting for the future someday kingdom when all of Christ's blessings are fully realized and experienced. But even right now, in a sense, there is blessings associated with our relationship with Christ and right, the, the, the possessing of the kingdom and its benefits is this already reality that even though we're waiting for future full fulfillment there's something to be experienced and gained right now in the present tense but then look at verses four five six seven eight and nine all of those are future all of those verse four 
they shall be comforted. Verse 5, they shall inherit the earth. Verse 6, they shall be satisfied. Verse 7, they shall receive mercy. All of these are in the future tense. So there is this sense and realization that not only in the future, in a, in a time standpoint, it will take place in the future. It really bothered me at the beginning of the week as I was trying to study why is verse 3 and verse 10 in the present tense and the rest of them are all in the future. I was struggling with that until part of what helped me understand it, the future tense for verses 4 through 9 is not simply, the emphasis is not on a future point in time as much as it is on a certain reality. What Jesus is saying is that take it to the bank. This is guaranteed to be true. You will be comforted. You will inherit the earth. You shall see God. That's the emphasis here is the certainty of these blessings. When Jesus pronounces these divine blessings, these divine blessings for this group of people the associated promises guaranteed take it to the bank it's going to happen so with some of those things in mind uh that that uh help us understand there's one more clarification that i want to make before we jump into all of this be careful as we go through this i think for any of us there's this danger as we read the beatitudes to think that jesus is giving us a list of moral imperatives as if Jesus is giving us a list of commands, requirements, and expectations that if we can do them good enough, if we can exceed, succeed, if we can pass enough check marks on the test, then we will receive blessing. So if we're not careful, we'll go through it and we'll say, well, am I poor enough in spirit? Do, do I mourn? Do I hunger and thirst for righteousness? Because if, if I'm not a peacemaker and if I'm not pure in heart, then I won't receive the kingdom. Now remember, Jesus is not saying as he goes through this, this is not a list of moral imperatives. This is not another list of thou shalts, right? In future weeks, you're going to see Jesus correct some of their misunderstandings of the Old Testament law. He's going to take some of the thou shalts that they had previously misinterpreted, they had previously misimplied, and he, he makes it very clear that he doesn't, he's not rewriting everything. He's not doing away with those. He's coming to fulfill the law, but be careful lest we think that Jesus is replacing old law with new law, as if now the way to enter the kingdom of heaven is to be poor in spirit and to be mournful and to be pure in heart. And if, if you line all of those things up and think that now if I just do good enough at these, this is what Jesus is saying for how I'm supposed to enter the kingdom of heaven. Some have taken it that way. So much so that they've realized the impossibility of doing it in this time and needed to say, well, maybe Jesus is pointing to a unique time in history where this actually can be fulfilled. But I don't think that's the case. I think there is a present reality and a, a, a present demand and a present promise on our lives. So let's think really carefully, what is Jesus saying? If Jesus is not saying, here's what you need to do to be favored by God, then what is he saying? What is his purpose in walking through these beatitudes? What was he trying to help his followers understand about the good life, about those who live a life that's favored by God? I'm glad you're asking the question. You've got to hang on to it. As we walk through some of this, we'll come back to that question at the end. Okay? So let's start in verse... Three, and we'll try to walk through some of these. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Th th this idea of divine favor, God's, God's profound divine blessing to the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom in heaven. So who are the poor in spirit? One of the things you have to note as you go through this, Luke has a version of the Sermon on the Mount. 
He doesn't include as many as Matthew does. He only includes four blesseds. And then he also has associated woes that Matthew doesn't include. So they have different purposes. But when Luke records this beatitude, he says, blessed are the poor. And he stops it right there. Now, there would be those who would say that, that see, that's what Jesus meant. The financially poor, that's, that's what it means to be a Christian and we should be about uh, uh, serving the poor. Now, I don't think that's a correct understanding of what Jesus was trying to say in this passage. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? First of all, you've got to understand that the word poor does mean just what you would think of when you think of someone who's financially poor, someone who's entirely dependent on others for finances. So why in spirit? You've got to understand that throughout Old Testament usage of the word poor, the, the, the parameters for that word are pretty clearly and frequently described. Andreas Kostenberger is one of the ones that does a really good job helping us understand what does the Bible mean when it talks about the poor. Sometimes it is talking about the materially destitute. But often the people of God, when you go through the Psalms, describe themselves as being poor, even in spirit, the psalmist says, when, when they realize that they're broken, when they realize that they're destitute in a spiritual sense before God, that they have nothing to offer God, that in a spiritual sense they don't have the ability to transact with God. Because of their sin, because of their brokenness, they realize their poorness. They are poor in spirit. I've got a few verses that we will show you. If you go to Psalm chapter 119, we'll have it for you on the screen. Here's what the psalmist says. My eyes shed streams of tears Here's, uh, whoops, I'll get to that one next one. You can go back. Uh, I, I, I got confused there. So, uh, what was I saying? The poor in spirit are those who realize that they are bankrupt before God. You've got this quote in your bulletin by John Piper where he says this, the condition that we must meet in order to have any dealings with God is spiritual bankruptcy. It is the easiest and hardest condition of all. What could be easier than having an empty hand? Unless you are clutching a $1,000 bill or a personal bill of rights. You see, as you, when you think of approaching God, when you think of the ability to stand before God, do you recognize your poverty in terms of your own righteousness? That's... That's what Jesus is addressing here. The ones who realize that they have nothing to offer God, they're the ones who receive the blessings and the benefits of an eternal relationship with God. The ones who realize that they have no goodness of their own, they're entirely dependent on God and his righteousness, that's what it means to be poor in spirit. And people who realize that have a special blessing from God. Go on to verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What does it mean to mourn? What, what is Jesus saying? The idea has to do with grief and loss and sorrow and those who grieve, those who are mourning. But it's not just loss over, it's not just mourning over personal loss, the way that you would mourn if you lost a loved one. Jesus is not saying to all the people who are brokenhearted and sad, Jesus will now make you happy. He's talking about a particular reason for their brokenheartedness. Again, Old Testament usage of this idea of mourning over our sin and our brokenness would come into play. This is the verse that I was trying to show you in Psalm 119, verse 136. The psalmist says, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. When we realize that we are poor in spirit, when we see the brokenness of the world around us, when we see the brokenness of our own lives, certainly for the Jew in that day, living in captivity, those whose hearts were in tune with God's law, would certainly mourn and 
the, the grief, the brokenness, the spiritual poverty of the people. Paul says something in the New Testament, in Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, where he says, uh, he, he's speaking, uh, uh, he's wanting the people to realize that they need to have a singular focus of straining towards the goal. He doesn't want them to get sidetracked, but he realizes that there's a group of people who are enemies. And he says, for many of whom I now have often told you and now tell you even with Tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. It's, it's frequent in Scripture to mourn and shed tears over sin to, when life doesn't work as it should. And this is what Jesus is saying, that, that those who realize their spiritual poverty and realize the brokenness of the world and it leads them to mourning, guess what? The day is coming where there will be true comfort for those sorrows. There will be true comfort for those that are afflicted in that sense. So then what is Jesus saying with the next one? If we look at verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That word meek, it carries with it the idea of being gentle, humble, considerate, uh, courteous. Those who have a humble state of mind, there's a special blessing for those. These are the kinds of people that truly understand the gospel and they're favored by God because they have a meek personality. Now, that, that's difficult for us to accept. We typically don't think. Notice the associated blessing. Helping us understand this particular one is the associated blessing, that it's the meek who are going to inherit the earth. That idea of inheritance speaks just what you would think of with the financial inheritance, that, be, that out of possession or ownership, there's something that we are going to receive. Now, it's talking about the earth. I'll talk about that in a second. But who is it, according to our culture and our day, and it wouldn't have been different 2,000 years ago, who are the ones that get ahead? Who are the ones that receive great things in life? Who are the ones that are going to get to the end of the day and find out they've received everything that I want. It's probably not the meek. It's probably not the gentle. It's the powerful, right? It's those who are willing to take advantage of others. That's what the world teaches us. And Jesus is flipping all of it upside down and saying, listen, it's, it's the gentle. It's the lowly. It's those who are willing to put others' needs in front of their own. You see, if being poor in spirit has to do with our relation to God, being meek has to do with our relation to those around us. And when we're gentle and lowly, that's when we're going to receive the associated and promised blessing. Now, it is difficult. Most of us like to think of ourselves as humble. Meekness is really, really difficult. And, and, and let me associate it this way. Let me give you a for instance that Martin Lloyd-Jones points out very, very well. So I already said that you need to be poor in spirit. For many of you that are Christians in this room, that's easy for you to put yourself in that category of I am spiritually destitute, right? If someone walks up to you after this service, puts their finger in your chest, and says you are spiritually poor, if someone points out your sin, how many of you are going to respond with a meek, gentle, lowly, humble response, right? Here's the way that Martin Lloyd-Jones says it. I can see my own utter nothingness and helplessness face to face with the demands of the gospel and the law of God. I am aware when I am honest with myself and the sin of the evil that are within me that drag me down, and I am ready to face both these things. How much more difficult is it to allow other people to say things like that about me? I instinctively resent it. We all of us prefer to condemn ourselves than to allow somebody else to condemn us. 
I say of myself that I am a sinner, but instinctively, I do not like anybody else to say that I am a sinner. That is the principle that is introduced at this point. It is very difficult to be meek and to allow other people to step in these places that we believe are rightfully ours. It's, allow, it's very difficult for us to have our rights infringed upon, and many of us like to think that we're meek until it starts to inconvenience us. And yet Jesus says that it's, it's the meek, it's the gentle, it's the lowly. They're the ones who are going to receive this eternal reward. Think of our Savior, the one that we point to, the one who had all divine rights and privileges, and he didn't cling to them, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and was willing to die death, even a death on the cross. Here's a man who was gentle and humble and lowly and meek, and he's our Savior. And then notice the associated blessing. It's these people who are meek that will inherit the earth. Now, I'm stepping aside from the point of the message, but by the way, this is just an encouraging point, I think. What is it that you are longing for in terms of your inheritance in this life? Notice that what these people inherit is the earth. This word is used frequently for, in Scripture for this earth that we live on now. Notice the promise of that. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the meek, for they're the ones who inherit heaven. You see, many of us have this, this concept that what we are waiting for as Christians is to go to heaven someday when we die. Now, Scripture is true that when the Christian dies, they are immediately in the presence of the Lord. But keep in mind that the grand narrative of Scripture, the reinforced truth over and over, is that our eternal state, our eternal dwelling, is not some mystical, confusing, where is heaven, but it's this earth made new. It's the new heavens and new earth. Think about Revelation at the end of the book when the new, heaven, the, the, the new heavens, new earth descends and the eternal dwelling state of man is with with God forever on a remade earth. Brothers and sisters, you, those of you who are Christians, we're not waiting to someday go to some mystical heavenly place. There will be a two-stage journey in that process. We need to think about that. But our final hope is on this earth made new. And that's our inheritance for those who are meek. Okay, aside over, I'll come back to the message. Come back to verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? I think exactly, exactly what it says. Blessed are those who have this insatiable desire they're craving. They want righteousness. They're hungering for it. They are thirsting for it. Well, what does that mean and what does that look like in our lives? Uh, there was a tension as I wrestled through this. Like, isn't it a good thing to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Like, what about those who were poor in spirit? I also thought that we were supposed to get to the point that we had no, like, if you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, isn't that something good in your spirit? Like, isn't that something that, do these two fit together? How do I be poor in spirit, but also hunger and thirst for righteousness? Remember where righteousness comes from. Righteousness can only come through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not something that we in and of ourselves have the ability to attain. It's also not something that we have the ability to receive from others. Righteousness can only be conferred to us through the person of God, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So remember, in a couple of chapters, in a couple more sections, you're going to see some of this played out in the coming months. The Pharisees, there was a group of people who loved to perform their righteous deeds in front of man. You might have thought 
lot in this day. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Yeah, that's the Pharisees. These guys, they're in the temple every day. They're keeping all of God's laws. They are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. That's them. If I want to hunger and thirst for righteousness, be like them. Well, Jesus is going to show up and he's going to say, they're not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They don't do these things because they love God. They do it because they love themselves and they hunger and thirst to have other people think they're right. Right? They, they weren't hungry and thirsty for God's righteousness, saying, God, I'm poor in spirit. Give me your righteousness. They loved themselves so much that they, they hungered and thirsted to be right. See, we need to be people who truly realize, I, I, I want righteousness from God. I need it as much as I need my next breath. I need it as much as I need my next meal. And it can only come from Him. Very similar with the idea of being pure in heart in the next verse. So those who are pure in, excuse me, not the next verse. I'll, let, me, let me skip that. We'll get there. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. If we properly understand our need for mercy, if we properly understand the debt that, that we have in relation to God that our sin places upon us, only then do we truly understand what it means to give mercy to others. Will it be easier for us to extend that mercy to others? Jesus told the parable of the unforgiving servant, and he made it very, very clear that people who don't understand their own need for mercy are, are not... They're, they're then not quick to forgive others. They're not quick to extend that same mercy. And yet, people who are living the good life, who've been favored by God, not only do they understand their own need for mercy, they're quick to then extend that need for mercy to others. Verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The, those who see God, those who experience Him and dwell with Him, are those who have this, this uh, singular, intense devotion to pursuing God wholly with purity of heart in the sense that they're not divided in their passions. They, they don't live one way a certain part of the week and hang on to their sins the other part of the week. Blessed are the pure in heart, those who singularly focus on God. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who get involved in the messy... Th this verse doesn't say, blessed are the peaceful, Right? That, that would make sense. If, certainly there's a group of people who live the transcendent, pristine, peaceful life. That's not what Jesus is saying. Blessed are the peacemakers. Those, those who go and help two parties at odds reconcile differences. That's what Jesus is saying. People who live the good life, people who have been favored by God, are, are the kinds of people who love to bring reconciliation. Once again, who, who is our chief example of peacemaker. Jesus himself is the one who brought peace to you and I. And we have a few more verses on the screen for you here as well. Colossians chapter 1. Um, in, in the Beatitudes, in Matthew, that word peacemaker is a noun. Here's the verb form of that noun in the book of Colossians, speaking of what Jesus has accomplished. He says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Same root word, verb form. This is, Jesus is the one who made peace 
by what he accomplished on the cross. If you go then to Ephesians, this is the same root words, but instead of two of them put together, they're flipped in a different order, but same, same concepts going on here that, that here's what Jesus accomplished, that the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile was broken down. Jesus brought in something new by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two and so making peace. Jesus is the one, our ultimate example of the one who brought peace. Peace, the one who made peace. So realize this, that peacemaking is something that is incredibly messy, it's incredibly difficult, and it's incredibly costly. It was not free for God to make peace with you and I, his children. His own son had to give his life and shed his blood. And, and as the people of God, whether it's with those of us in the church or as we try to bring the message of reconciliation to the world, it's going to be costly. It's going to be difficult, but praise God for people who are willing to get down in the mess and make peace. These are the kinds of characteristics that surround the lives of those who have been favored by God. The last one then in verse 10, blessed are the persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm not going to explain that much today. In verses 11 and 12, he gives further commentary and so we'll kind of save some of that for a future look. But let, let's kind of now as we've walked through all of these, let's think about this for a little minute. What was Jesus accomplishing? What was Jesus' purpose in walking through all of these Beatitudes and saying, look, if you want to know who the people that, that are my children, who are the ones who are favored by me, who are the ones who are accepted by me, what does it look like to live as Jesus' people in his kingdom and in his plan? What does it look like to have your lives characterized as one who follows Christ? Well, there's one interpretive detail that I didn't give you as we started walking through it, and I'd like to come back to it at this point. As you think about these eight Beatitudes, these eight blessings, don't think of it as eight different groups of people. Did you find yourself doing that? Did you find yourself thinking, okay, on my score sheet, I've got five out of eight. Not bad, better than average, right? Jesus is not saying, hey, if you're mourning, there's a blessing for you. You, you mourners, good. You're blessed over here. Jesus is not saying there's a group of people over here who are poor in spirit. They also have a blessing for them. He's not saying there's eight different kinds of people in my plan. Jesus is saying there is one group of people who are my followers that are going to receive all of the blessings. And these things are true in their lives. Th these are the kinds of people, this is what I accomplish in their lives. Nowhere was Jesus trying to tell us, if you can do these eight things, you make it in the kingdom. That was not Jesus' plan and intention in saying this sermon. He was simply saying, look, you, you, you want to know what it means to be favored by God. They had all of their own ideas of what it meant to be favored by God, of what it meant to be one of God's special chosen people. They knew who was in and who was out. Certainly, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, they were the closest people to God. You see it as in Jesus' interactions, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. Here's a group that is certainly down and outers. There's no way that they're going to get close to God. And Jesus comes and he's doing this miraculous thing. He's saying the kingdom of heaven has come near. The king is here. He's healing people. There's excitement. There's crowds. And Jesus is saying, listen, do you want to know what the kingdom is really about? Do you want to know what it's really like to be my people? Let me tell you what my people are like. Here's what I accomplish in their lives. These eight characteristics are the things that are going to be true of anyone who is my 
follower. And so not only was Jesus saying, this is what they are like, he was also upending what they originally thought. He was of necessity excluding certain things that they thought. By saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, that rules out a certain group of people. Think who would have been around them in the crowds. Think of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Think of the scribes and the law keepers. I'm lumping all of them together. They were not poor in spirit. They thought they had incredible grounds to transact with God on a, on a spiritual level. And Jesus was saying, this is not it. If you're going to trust your own works and performance in the law, you, you, the kingdom of heaven is not yours. It's the poor in spirit to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs. Think of another group of people that Jesus was around. The tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes. As you go through the Beatitudes, here's what's really interesting. Jesus is also saying they're not going to get in. It's the pure in heart. It's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? But wait a minute. Jesus also says that it's the poor in spirit. So the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, they, they've got to step up on the Pharisees. They're one step closer to realizing they have no righteousness of their own. Jesus' work on the cross could, could bring even them into God's plan and program. Think of the zealots. Remember how I've told you before there was a whole group of Jewish people. They weren't all Pharisees and Sadducees. There was a spectrum. There were zealots. There were insurrectionists. These were people who were, they were ready to bring in the kingdom by violent overthrow. All right? If we can't cooperate with Rome, if we can just conquer the kingdom, we, we need somebody who will come in and overthrow Rome. And then Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Well, that doesn't sound like much of an insurrection. Blessed are the meek. Here's what Jesus is saying as he puts all of these together. Everything that they've ever thought is wrong for how to be favored by God. It wasn't the example of the scribes and the Pharisees that were going to get them close to God. Yes, those who in sin were kept at a distance from God, that sin had to be dealt with. There were so many people in society where their sin made them unclean. Their deformities made them unclean. Their ritual uncleanness, they felt there was no way that they could get close to God. Here's what Jesus is saying. At the same time, no one has the ability to come to God. And yet at the same time, anyone who comes to Christ on the grounds of his righteousness and the person of work of Jesus Christ, they're the ones who can come to God. At the same time, he's ruling out everyone and making it possible for everyone. He, he's helping them see that there's a divine favor and blessing to the poor in spirit, to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, to the pure in heart. And the only way they were going to be made pure in heart is through the work of Jesus Christ. So here's my application if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever. If you're not yet a Christian, if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, realize that your sins separate you from God. And the only way that you can live the good life, the, the divine life of favor, to have that blessing from God is if you turn from your sin and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And what he accomplished on the cross, that his sinless life, his death, burial, and resurrection is payment for your sins. That you can have eternal life through what Jesus accomplished on the cross for you. If you're here this morning and a Christian, I want you to be encouraged by the Beatitudes. 
It's, it's divine blessing. It, it's, a, it's a celebratory pronouncement of all the good things that God intends to produce in the life of his children. It's easy for Christians to go away discouraged from this thinking, I guess I've got to work harder at being meek. I guess I've got to work harder at being pure in heart. Well, yes, there's a sense that when we see God's standard, it calls us to more. But get this, it, the same grace and righteousness of Jesus Christ that saves you and wipes away your sins is the same grace that Jesus intends to use in your life to produce these things and make them true in your life. As you, as you draw near to God, as you savor the gospel, as you learn who Jesus is, realize that he's calling you to this great and glorious and grand and good life and he intends to accomplish these things in our lives all through his grace. John Stott wrote about these kinds of truths. He talked about the twofold purpose of the sermon, that it both condemns but it also makes a path for, for, for God to accomplish his work in us, similar to the way the Old Testament law did both of those things. It called out sin and condemned, but it also provided a, a means of covering, a way of relationship for the, for, the, for the children of Israel to have a relationship with God. Well, now as Jesus shows up and he says, listen, this is, what, this is now the new covenant promises. This is, this is what the gospel is going to produce in my life. Here's the twofold purpose of what Jesus is talking about. First, it shows that the non-Christian, he cannot please God by himself because he cannot obey the law. And so it directs him to Christ to be justified. If you're an unbeliever, the only way you're going to live the good life and be made right is through Christ. Secondly, though, it shows the Christian who has been to Christ for justification how to live so as to please God. More simply, as both the Reformers and the Puritans used to summarize it, the law sends us to Christ to be justified, and Christ sends us back to the law to be sanctified. Luther is even more clear, quoting now Martin Luther, about the second purpose of this sermon. Here's Martin Luther's words. Christ is saying nothing in this sermon about how we become Christians, but only about the works and fruit that no one can do unless he already is a Christian and in a state of grace. And Sot's summary is this. So as the Beatitudes set forth the blessings which God bestows, not as a reward for merit, but as a gift of grace upon those in whom he is working such a character. Christian, if you're here this morning, be encouraged at what the grace of God intends to produce in your life as these divine favors, these divine blessings, that these would be true characteristics in our lives. Be encouraged by that. Ask God to produce these things in your hearts as we walk through this sermon together in the coming months. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we are so grateful that Christ's death on the cross paid the entire debt of our sins. It was a sufficient sacrifice to bring us into right relationship with God. Lord, I pray that if there's unbelievers here, that you would work in their heart to convict them of their need of righteousness, to show them Christ as a way of salvation. For the believers here, may they be encouraged by what you intend to accomplish in their lives through your work of grace. We ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.